This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about all things Supreme Court and the law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent, and there was a lot of action this week at the highest court in the land. Later on in the podcast, we'll talk a little bit about specialty license plates in Texas and Justice Anthony Kennedy and what he thinks of gridlock in Congress. But first, we're going to turn to one of the high-profile arguments this week. Michigan versus EPA has to do with the challenge to part of the Clean Air Act that was brought by Michigan and 21 other states, along with several mining and utility companies. They had sued the Environmental Protection Agency, claiming that new regulations aimed at reducing mercury, arsenic, and other hazardous pollutants from coal-fired power plants were enacted without proper consideration of the costs. The challenged Clean Air Act rule, enacted over 20 years ago, says that if these substances are shown to harm human health, the EPA, quote, shall regulate the major sources of these pollutants where it is, quote, appropriate and necessary. Remember that appropriate and necessary, it's going to become important. But Michigan and the other states claim that the costs involved in cutting their emissions would be crippling, $9.6 billion according to the briefs, and the benefits infinitely smaller, maybe 4 to $6 million in savings. The EPA, for its part, puts the dollar amount on benefits at between 30 and $97 billion, claiming these regulations would prevent up to 11,000 premature deaths and 4,700 heart attacks every year, all resulting from this kind of pollution. A lower court upheld the EPA's regulations, set to go into effect next month. Joining us now to discuss the case is Peter Glazer. He's a partner at Troutman Sanders LLP in Washington, D.C. Mr. Glazer served as counsel of record for one of the petitioners in this litigation, the National Mining Association. Peter Glazer, welcome to Amicus. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Peter, I wonder if you could start us off by just helping summarize what it is that the petitioners were claiming. Uh, What was the problem with the EPA regulations at issue here? Yeah, sure. Uh, EPA adopted the regulations, uh, but explicitly said that in determining whether it was appropriate and necessary to have the regulations, we, EPA, are not going to consider the cost of the regulations. Uh, the cost turned out to be, by EPA's own analysis, uh, something like $9.6 billion per year. EPA simply said that that was irrelevant to its appropriate and necessary determination. Uh, and we, uh, on behalf of industry uh, and also a number of states, uh, challenged uh, EPA's decision not to consider costs. So let's go into chamber now for oral argument. Um, I think probably Justice Scalia 
best summed up your side of the case uh, when he called into question the benefits on the other side and the price tag attached to that. Let's listen to him for a minute. I'm not even sure I agree with the premise that uh, when when Congress says nothing about cost, uh, the agency is entitled to disregard cost. I would think uh, it's classic arbitrary and capricious agency action for an agency to command something that is outrageously uh, expensive and, and in which the expense vastly exceeds whatever public benefit can be can be achieved. I would think that's a, that's a violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. So, so Peter, for its part, the EPA says it's not a, a minimal benefit, right? They put the dollar amount for the new rules on people's health somewhere between $30 billion to $97 billion. They say, oh, if we put these regs into effect, we're going to avoid up to 11,000 premature deaths and 4,700 heart attacks. So when Justice Scalia says, you know, these are kind of trivial benefits, is he overstating it or is there genuinely some dispute about that? Well, he's not uh, overstating it. Uh, There was debate about what the ultimate cost benefit was. As I said, there were $9.6 billion worth of costs per year. That was EPA's estimate. EPA also said that it could quantify benefits from regulating actual hazardous air pollutants, which after all is what we're supposed to be regulating here. Uh, they quantified that at about four to six million, not billion, but million per year. That's what uh, Justice Scalia was referring to when he said the, 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 you know, the disproportionate costs and benefits. EPA came back and said, well, actually, we're creating what they called co-benefits, sort of coincidental benefits uh, that you get by regulating other sorts of pollutants when you uh, regulate hazardous air pollutants. But, but all of that actually was not really relevant to the determination here because EPA said it did not weigh costs versus benefits. EPA's position was we don't have to do that. And so the whole cost-benefit analysis was not relevant to EPA's ultimate determination, which was we feel it's appropriate to adopt these standards without considering the relative costs and benefits. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying even if the numbers squared more closely with what you think the numbers might be, it still wouldn't matter because they just didn't take cost into account. Yeah. uh, And that was sort of the nub of the argument that, you know, EPA had put out various benefit estimates. And our view was, look, if you uh, believe that the benefits outweigh the costs, then say so and adopt a regulation based on a weighing of costs and benefits. But they didn't do that. Uh, The last quote I want to play for you goes to this question of why does this all matter anymore? 90% of the industry is in compliance. You know, the regs go into effect uh, very shortly. Is this all a tempest in a teapot? How hard is it to comply? Here's uh, Paul Smith, who is arguing uh, the case on the EPA side, uh, trying to make this point to the justices. I would point out that it's important to recognize that something like 90% of that 9.6 billion, 9.6% of the, 90% of the capital cost, which is most of that 9.6 billion, has now already been spent. And the industry has not experienced the kinds of upheavals that are being described. The, the rule takes effect in the middle of April. So my question for you, Peter, is, isn't that the case? Isn't the industry coming online and uh, this is not the kind of catastrophic impact on the industry that might have been suggested earlier on? 
Uh, well, with all due respect to Mr. Smith, uh, this rule has had a very significant, uh, intentionally transformative effect on the American power industry. Uh, as uh, my client, the National Mining Association, indicated in its brief, uh, something like between a quarter and a sixth of uh, all the coal-fired generation uh, in the country, and that in turn was about half of the coal-fired generation in this country, uh, has been forced into retirement uh, because of this rule. So uh, I would not agree with uh, Mr. Smith's statement there. And that's because, although in our minds this is just a matter of putting some scrubbers in, it's far more complicated than that. Well, it is the massive cost. Uh, $9.6 billion a year is a lot of money, obviously, and uh, for a number of units, uh, they were simply not able to afford to make that kind of investment, and they were therefore forced into retirement. And the argument on your side is this cost gets passed on to the consumer, and uh, that becomes disastrous for not just the industry, but for all the rest of us. Yeah, it has, a, it has an impact. I mean, basically, these are all costs being charged to electric utilities. The utilities uh, pass all those costs on to consumers. They pay higher electric rates. And then the forced retirements of these units uh, create uh, issues as to the uh, continuing reliability of the electric grid. Is there enough power out there? So, yeah, it's a big, big, important rule and a big, important case. The last question I want to ask you is that if you're kind of just looking at this as a pure agency problem, there certainly is this general notion that we give what's called Chevron deference, right? We defer to agencies to interpret their own rules and that if the EPA says that appropriate and necessary means what they say it means, the courts kind of need to defer to that. What's your response to that argument? Well, again, that was a uh, major issue that was briefed in the case, uh, whether or not EPA's interpretation should get deference and, and how much. Our uh, view was that uh, you get uh, deference to an extent, but you don't get deference for a, an interpretation of the statute that is uh, unreasonable. And then we uh, also made the argument that even if uh, you get deference and uh, becomes up to EPA to uh, make a decision about whether or not to consider costs, then they have to make a reasonable decision on that. And uh, if uh, you've got this sort of cost-benefit disproportion, uh, as we indicated, the $9.6 billion in costs versus the 4 to $6 million in benefits, then that just becomes arbitrary uh, agency action. Peter Glaser, a partner at Troutman Sanders LLP in Washington, D.C., served as counsel of record for one of the petitioners in this litigation, the National Mining Association. Peter Glaser, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. In just a moment, we're going to hear from someone on the other side of the case. But first, this brief word about other goings-on in the Panoply Podcast Network. 
Hi, I'm James Ledbetter of Inc. Magazine and Inc.com. I would like you to listen to our podcast, Inc. Uncensored, in which my colleagues and I talk about business and startups and entrepreneurship and technology and cool companies and, frankly, just about anything we want to. For example, this week, executive editor John Fine talked about... An excellent primer to Indie Rock Economics circa 2015, as described by the long-running band Deerhoof. Editor-at-large, Kimberly Weisel. Core Power Yoga. Get ready for the Starbucks of yoga. And staff writer, Will Yakowitz. Two companies, Taser and Vview, that are making body cameras for police. They are trying to sow the seeds of trust between police and public or just trying to make some bucks. Download us at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks. And now on to the other side of Michigan versus EPA. Our next guest is Sean H. Donahue of the law firm Donahue and Goldberg. He is counsel of record on the respondent's brief filed by the American Academy of Pediatrics and several other non-governmental health, environmental, and civil rights groups. Sean Donahue, welcome to Amicus. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit, because I think it's probably important, we haven't talked about it yet, what the issue is with mercury and the other toxins that are being regulated here. Right. So these are all pollutants that Congress itself listed as hazardous air pollutants in Section 112 of the Clean Air Act uh, in 1990. And this section of the Clean Air Act is the sort of highest priority pollutants, the ones that are uh, regarded as having the most serious harms. Uh, So with mercury, the primary pathway for harming human health is that mercury is deposited in water bodies, and then it transfers its way up the food chain. And when fish uh, with methylmercury in their tissue are consumed by people, There are a variety of very significant health effects, including damaging the nervous system, particularly the developing nervous system. So fetuses and and babies are are particularly at risk. Uh, But mercury is just one of the pollutants. Power plants are by far the biggest source of mercury, um, but they are overwhelmingly the largest source of of several other air pollutants, including the the non-mercury metal arsenic, um, acid gases, Um, like hydrochloric acid gas, which harm the respiratory system and harm the environment. Um, And for some of these pollutants, the power plants emit more than all other sources combined. Um, And all the other major industrial sources of these pollutants are already regulated under this program. So the argument that this program is going to lead to extreme consequences has to answer to 20 years of experience for chemical plants and refineries and and a litany of other source categories for which that hasn't proven to be true. Sean, the whole case, it seems, comes down to these two words, appropriate and necessary, uh, in the statute, and whether something about the words appropriate and necessary magically contain a cost requirement. And, of course, the other side says... Yeah, because cost is part of appropriate and necessary. Um, What's your answer to that? Right. Our answer is, as the Supreme Court has recognized before, the word appropriate depends on context. If you ask a librarian to decide if a book is appropriate for children, that's not a question about how much the book costs or what color it is. It's a question probably about whether there's certain kind of content that, that is mature in nature, right? And we know that from the context of the question. Um, What EPA said here was, in looking at 
this regime for controlling the sort of most wanted list of hazardous air pollutants, Congress appears to be wanting us to focus on health effects. And there's the same provision that uses the term appropriate and necessary required EPA to perform a study of the hazards to human health from power plant emissions of these hazardous air pollutants and to make its appropriate and necessary finding after considering the results of that study, which seems to be very powerful evidence of what Congress was concerned about. Um, And the entire regime, again, as I mentioned, it is undisputed that for all the other sources, including other categories that are very vital to the economy, like refineries and, and various kinds of manufacturing facilities, it's undisputed that there's no consideration of cost at the threshold but there's ample consideration of cost in setting the stringency of standards. And EPA said, we think it's right, it, it makes sense to apply that same framework here, and that what appropriate was about was responding to these arguments that were made in 1990 that um, emissions from power plants are not a health problem, or that other programs being adopted in 1990 would take care of the pollution problem. And that's what EPA looked at and concluded that, no, there's a remaining very significant problem, and it's appropriate to regulate. And as with all the other sources, we'll consider cost uh, when we set the standards. It seems to me that all eyes uh, this week were on Chief Justice John Roberts and uh, Anthony Kennedy. They have voted with the APA in the past. Uh, it seemed like there was some rough sledding with the Chief Justice. Uh, here is a, a little excerpt from oral argument where he more or less suggests that it's nuts to think that Congress didn't want to do a cost assessment. Uh, you're saying that the agency deliberately tied its hands and said, we're not going to consider something. We're going to issue a rule saying we can't consider something that we could consider otherwise. So so is that what the chief is asking? And what's the response to that? Right. I think the question is, you know, you admit this language is broad. Why would you not consider costs? And I think the answer to that is the one EPA has has given in its briefs and, and throughout, which is this particular program contains a very carefully considered balancing of health concerns and of compliance cost concerns. And we think the right way to handle this question of how to strike the balance is to follow what Congress did for all the other sources, which is say, decide at the front end whether to regulate based on health, if there's a problem. And then when you determine the stringency of standards, follow this very particular, and the, and the particulars are First, you determine have a substantial number of sources achieved a certain level of pollution control already. And if that's the case, you should require the others to do that because these are very serious pollutants that we want to reduce uh, the amount of in the atmosphere. And then considering the cost of achieving further reductions, should we go further than that? And EPA followed that here and it found that uh, these pollutants are widely controlled in the industry. And it's basically a subset of typically very old power plants that don't do what their peers are doing. And it found that it was reasonable to ask them to do that. And that's what the statute uh, requires. And so, um, you know, I think it's a fair question from the chief justice. But of course, this court has been very um, concerned about the idea of of agencies uh, arrogating too broad uh, authority to themselves. And here EPA said, 
we think Congress has made some policy choices here about how rigorously we're supposed to handle this most wanted list of pollutants. And we are going to honor those policy choices because what um, Mr. Glazer and the other petitioners want here is this kind of open-ended utilitarian balance at the front, which is actually, um, from you know my perspective, that's a considerably more, uh, uh, a greater power to give to the agency at the front end. Kind of, is it worth it to regulate these hazardous pollutants? Yes, this is by far the biggest source of them. Yes, uh, very prevalent controls requiring the older plants to install controls that are in widespread use in the industry would vastly reduce emissions of these congressionally designated hazardous pollutants. But we we don't think it's worth it. Really, we we think um, you know uh, we 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 think otherwise. And so the the, the choices that Congress made. Uh, in this section would would basically be overridden by agency interpretation. So I think I think um, when you sort of reflect on it, the EPA's interpretation is actually one that um, hews closely to policy choices made by the legislature and is reasonable. Sean H. Donahue of the law firm Donahue and Goldberg is counsel of record on one of the respondents' briefs, the one filed by the American Academy of Pediatrics and various non-governmental health, environmental, and civil rights groups. Sean Donahue, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dahlia. My pleasure. And now on to our highlights reel. Another big case argued this week at the high court involved the question of whether the state of Texas, which, like many other states, issues specialty license plates of all sorts, can silence one group that wants to create a Confederate flag license plate as well. In a case that managed to unite the Texas Sons of Confederate Veterans and the ACLU, the argument was that if the state creates specialty plates like Keep Texas Beautiful or Mothers Against Drunk Driving, they cannot be allowed to refuse to support other plates merely because of the message they convey, in this case, an offensive reminder of slavery to many. A state board in Texas nevertheless rejected the Confederate battle flag plates because, it said, the plates carried, quote, a message of hate. Texas, like the other states that issue specialty plates, makes millions of dollars selling them. The state had issued 480 specialty plates and rejected, well, only 12. It's a bit of a First Amendment pickle because it raises questions about whose speech these state-sponsored plates really represent, the guy driving or the state government. And like all good oral arguments, this one sometimes revealed a whole lot more about the justice asking the questions than the First Amendment dispute being argued. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for instance, may simply have been hungry when she asked this of Texas Solicitor General Scott Keller, who was arguing that the flag plates offended people. Well, one of, one of the problems with the scheme is its nebulous standard. Uh, it would be regarded as offensive to many people. I mean, it, it, is it government speech to say mighty fine burgers to advertise a product? And Chief Justice John Roberts, well, he might just have been a little bit hungrier. Oh, okay. What's its policy between permitting uh, mighty fine burger plates and, you know, pretty good burgers plates? (laughs) (laughs) Justice Antonin Scalia asked Keller whether the state exercised similar types of veto power over racy vanity plates, raising questions about what his own vanity plates might read. Does Texas uh, also have specialty plates... Uh, insofar as the the letters or numbers of the plates are concerned, I mean, can you get a 
a license plate that says hot stuff or something like that. <laughs> Justice Scalia, we do have personalized plates in Texas. And are those censored? I mean, can you, uh, can you use a dirty word on those? And Justice Anthony Kennedy finally said what everyone else knows to be true, that nature just sucks. Is this a case where the state, the government, has aided in creating a new kind of public forum? People don't go to parks anymore. Oh, and then he said it again. And people don't go to parks anymore. They drive. When James George, representing the Sons of Confederate Veterans, suggested that the state of Texas could simply put up a disclaimer to make clear that this was not Texas's message, Justice Sotomayor, rarely a comedian, had the following pragmatic concern. I don't think people can, the government can discriminate on content. They can put on the license plates they disagree with. This is not the state's speech in big orange letters and disclaim that speech. Where's that going to fit on the license plate? Huh? Where's that going to fit on the license plate? (laughs) Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg proved herself proficient with many offensive symbols and also managed to prove that vegan is a dirty word in Texas. Suppose the message, the, the applicant said, we want this design, and the design is the swastika. Is that speech that does, does the whoever is in charge of the of the license plate do they have to accept that, that design? I don't believe the state can discriminate against the people who want to have that design. We're going to have this swastika, and suppose somebody else says, "I want to have jihad on my license plate." That's okay too. Vegan? Jihad. Jihad. Jihad on the license plate. Ginsburg reckons back to her own days as a flower child when she asks George, How about make pot legal? Say yes. Make pot legal. Yes. That's okay. And bang hits for Jesus. (laughs) Yes. Bang hits for Jesus, in case you don't remember, involved another free speech pot case at the U.S. Supreme Court. Justice Antonin Scalia then told George that if he just kept on talking, there wouldn't be any more specialty plates in Texas. So you're you're really arguing for the abolition of Texas specialty plates, aren't you? I'm arguing that if the I couldn't make a better argument in that direction than than what you've been doing. Finally, Justice Sam Alito said out loud what everyone else was thinking that when it comes to these state-sponsored specialty plates, it's not just about warm, fuzzy feelings. He asked James George, Do you know how much money Texas makes from this? I don't have that. It's not a line item in the budget, but lots. That's really all this is about, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) And now for one last little bit of Supreme Court news slash gossip. As you may remember, a couple weeks ago on this very show, we discussed King versus Burwell. That was the new challenge to the Affordable Care Act, or as we like to call it, Obamacare. And one of the issues that was manifest both in the briefs and at oral argument was this question of, wait, if the exchanges fall apart, can't Congress just fix them? You may also remember that when that very question was asked of Solicitor General Donald Verrilli defending the statute, he said, this Congress? 
and everybody in the chamber laughed. That's because a lot of people believe that the Affordable Care Act is unfixable, particularly in the current climate. Well, testifying this week before Congress in a routine piece of testimony, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who may well be one of the swing voters on this case, practically begged us not to take the following to heart when thinking about how he's going to vote in the Affordable Care Act case. We routinely decide cases uh, involving federal statutes, and we say, well, if this is wrong, the Congress will fix it. Uh, But then we hear that Congress can't pass a bill one way or the other. Uh, that there is gridlock. And some people say, well, that should affect the way we interpret the statutes. Uh, that seems to me uh, a wrong proposition. We, we have to assume uh, that we have three fully functioning branches of the government, government that are committed to proceed uh, in good faith and with goodwill toward one another uh, to resolve the problems of this republic. going to do it for this episode of Amicus. We would love to hear your thoughts. Our email address is amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. We would be ever so appreciative if you could take a few minutes to help us spread the word about Amicus. One very good way to do just that is to leave a short review on our iTunes page. Just search Amicus in the iTunes store, click the ratings and reviews tab. Thank you. One final announcement from our friends here at Slate. Next week, those of you in the Big Apple have the opportunity to watch the premiere of Mad Men with Slate's TV Club. Join Julia Turner, John Swansburg, and special guests from the Mad Men TV Club to ring in the final days of Sterling Cooper and Partners. It's happening Sunday, April 5th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Doors open at 9, but Slate Plus members get early access at 8 for a special happy hour with preferred seating. This event is free, but you need to RSVP to ensure a spot at the event. Please do that at slate.com slash madman. As always, a great big thank you to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. You can find our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.